Now, if you find things that hold value, you find things to fight for, we found something worth fighting for as an NBA, as a collective unit. And I use these shoes as a, as a symbol to me to keep fighting all around the world. What's up, guys? Welcome to Birdwatch. I am Christian Clark, the Pelicans beat writer for NOLA.com and The Advocate. Here today, uh, Monday afternoon, uh, I basically spent all day Sunday uh, watching basketballs, eight hours worth. Uh, the, the Nuggets jazz game was particularly delightful. Jamal Murray and, and Donovan Mitchell went at it. Um, it was just a really fun day of basketball, I thought. But the whole time I was watching, I, I still you know, had this, the thought in the back of my head, this all just, just feels weird and, and not that important after everything that had gone down in the 72 hours that lasted Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Um, I wanted to spend a little time at the top just talking about that because I think it is really important. Um, on, on Wednesday, the Milwaukee Bucks did not take the court in their game against the Orlando Magic. It was actually a closeout opportunity for them, a chance to put away their first-round series. Um, And really, this all kind of stemmed from the frustration and anger about the police shooting of Jacob Blake. Um, Jeff, I wanted to get your thoughts on this, but for me, I thought one of the most interesting parts of of this strike, and we should call it a strike, not a boycott, um, as a couple of people pointed out, was how personal this was for the Bucks. I mean, not only is Kenosha, Wisconsin, you know, 40 miles away from, from where the Milwaukee Bucks play, but there are multiple stories of, you know, Bucks players getting racially profiled by the police and, and just getting abused by the police. I mean, I encourage everyone, if they haven't already, to read Sterling Brown's essay in the, play, in the Players' Tribune. I went back and read that one. You know, I, I think on Thursday, um, you know, he's a reserve wing for the Bucks. Basically, in, in 2016, he was double parked outside of a Walgreens. Uh, the cops asked him for his license, and he winds up, you know, just getting taken down to the ground by a bunch of cops. Tased, they knelt on his neck. They threw him in jail for a little bit. The cops basically offered him $400,000 to keep quiet the Milwaukee Police Department, and he didn't. He went public with it. Um you know, I I just totally understand, you know, why players feel the way they do right now. I mean, I understand why it built to that point and how it got to that point. But what did you just think about, you know, the NBA just just kind of hitting pause because of, you know, Bucks players deciding that we just felt this was really necessary in this moment. Yeah. Uh, well, so the first thing that kind of went through my mind when it all everything kind of circled into what it became was. I think we all should go and give a nice apology to Kyrie Irving because, you know, way before this process got started, he, you know, came out and said, like, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think we should be going. I don't think that it's going to put the, the the emphasis where we need it. Um, I think it's going to just give people an opportunity to forget about what's happening. And, you know, he got raked over the coals by a lot of people for that. And, and a lot of that was because he wasn't going to be, you know, he wasn't going to be active anyway. And a lot of the reaction was, well, I don't really care what you have to say. You're not one of the people going. Um, but I think, you know, seeing what we saw last week kind of gives you a much better idea of just how emotional 
this situation is for uh, so many of the NBA players. And early on, it was really tough to get that perspective. Um, but I think, you know, with hindsight, I think he really was speaking for a lot of people that, you know, might not feel as empowered to come out and say those things. Um, and it was interesting to see how the other teams reacted because uh, there was a report uh, it came out, I want to say this morning or last night, that uh, Michael Carter-Williams said he got a text about 15 minutes before tip-off that the Bucks weren't going to play. Um, and, you know, and I think that a few people were put off by the fact that this wasn't a group decision. And But, I, I mean, I think that it was something that a lot of people were would wanted to do. And the Bucks kind of took the, took the front step. And I think that they were right to do that because they have such a close tie to the situation that caused the recent, the most recent outrage, right? There seems to be always something. Uh, there was a situation out in Lafayette a few weeks ago, isn't it? Trayford Pellerin was shot by police and there's been protests out there. And it's just, it is one thing after another. And if you haven't watched Doc Rivers angry, uh, words after the Clippers played the night before you should go and watch it because I think he put into perspective so much of what the players and what the coaches and what so many people are feeling about the situation I honestly when it all came down I didn't expect them to come back I I expected and if they did I expected it to take a little longer I was surprised to see the games resume what was it Saturday was the first day they came back so it was really what Wednesday Thursday Friday it was three days without basketball and I think that there were a lot of players that didn't want to play. They, they were ready to call it. Uh, so it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the rest of this situation goes forward because there's a lot of time left. And uh, a lot of the players are going to be getting their families into the bubble after the second round series, I think. Or I, I'm not entirely sure. I know that there's a, there's a date where their families are going to start being allowed to come in. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how those teams adjust to that. Yeah, I mean, I think that was, you know, one of the big questions, obviously, when this went down on Wednesday. Um, are, are we just done completely? Um, you know, there were a couple of meetings between, you know, players who were still left in the bubble as a whole. That seemed to be part of the frustration um, that the Bucks just kind of did this without consulting, you know, the other players, the players union as a whole. Um, you know, on one hand, I can I can kind of understand that, Uh you know, maybe like if you're a LeBron James, you know, you've already invested all this time down there. I mean, you're already, you know, like halfway done with this not so fun process and, you know, your, your team is finally playing well. So it was maybe a little frustrating that, that they just did this without, you know, letting you know and much of a plan, frankly, going into it. Um, on the other hand, I mean, I, I just totally get the frustration on their end. And I actually think, you know, looking at a couple of days removed, it did accomplish, you know, a couple positive things. I mean, I think definitely it shifted the focus back on to the, this issue, which has been, you know, one of the planks of the NBA's return police brutality against black people. I mean, I think there's unquestionably more, more police or media focus on this issue. And when you're talking about, you know, substantial change, um, they basically came up with a three-point plan for the NBA's return part two. One of them was that in cities where the team owns the arena, they're going to convert those arenas into voting hubs. 
Um, I believe, you know, where the Clippers play, that's going to occur a couple other cities. It's not going to happen in New Orleans because uh, Smoothie King Center is owned by the state. Um, at least it's, you know, there's not a lot of hope that it is. But, I mean, I, I think that's, you know, a thing that you can look at as like real substantial change that, that the NBA created and, and the Bucks really uh, just by doing this. Yeah, and I think that a lot of the frustration with how things were going on in the bubble was from players who felt that, you know, that it was, it was, there was a lot of attention early on in terms of what they were trying to accomplish in their, in their messaging, you know, and you had the, you had the social justice messages on the back of the jerseys and and that sort of thing. But I think after a while, it kind of just started settling into this, okay, it's just a way to distract yourself with basketball. And that was kind of the crux of the, debate over whether they should go in there to begin with outside of any coronavirus considerations, obviously. Uh, and, and I, and I agree, I think that is what was, what it was turning into. And I think that the decision to kind of say, okay, no, we, we will not continue to do this if this is how it's going to continue for the next two months. And it was good to see the NBA be amenable to that. I think there, there was some criticism over it's like, why are they striking against the league? The league doesn't have anything to do with the police in those states, which is true, but that's really not, they weren't trying to hurt the league. They were trying to make sure that the attention is where it's supposed to be. Um, and I think to at least the level that it can have an effect, they definitely helped the messaging and the, and the attention and the spotlight be where it should be. Um, so I, I think that they should be commended. And uh, like I said, I think it's going to be interesting to see how it goes from here on. I thought Jamal Murray's interview he did on TNT was so powerful um, after the Nuggets and Jazz game on Sunday night. Um, you know, he just scored 50 points for the second time in that playoff series. And Jared Greenberg, you know, started off asking him about his performance. And it was clear, you know, you could see Jamal kind of internally wrestling with, well, do I just talk about this insane night that I had or do I, do I shift the focus back onto, you know, really this issue? Um, of, of quality that we're all trying to fight for. And he kind of started off by, by, you know, maybe going down the road of just talking about my night. And then he immediately, you know, went back to what was on his shoes and what was on his shoes were pictures of, of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, I know at a couple of the media availabilities with, with local Denver media, he's just put those shoes on the chair in front of him before he even came out there and talked to him. I mean, I just, I thought it was so impressive. Jamal Murray is 23 years old. I mean, and I thought it was very illustrative of, of kind of this issue. I mean, these NBA players, a lot of these guys are in their early, mid-20s. I mean, they they understand that this is, you know, a huge problem and, and something that's just not right and, and kind of a stain in our country, frankly. Um, and you know, I think they're trying to do their best to, to do something about it and correct it. But at the same time, I mean, they're not politicians. Like, <laughs> these guys really shouldn't be the ones, you know, to have to figure out concrete solutions for, like, large societal problems. So so I think, you know, they're doing what they can. And I commend them, man. I mean, I, I thought Jamal Murray's interview was really powerful. I mean, it, it really just affected me that a guy after, you know, maybe, maybe the best night of your career that, that that's where his mind went. Um, and you know, I'm, I keep going back to 
a line in uh, the column that Dan Lebetard wrote that went up on ESPN. And, you know, this is not really just from him. I hear this a lot. But, you know, if you're if you're tired of hearing about police brutality against black people, imagine how tired black people are of just living with that every day. It's got to be, I'm exhausted and I'm not even a person who should be exhausted. I mean, I can't even imagine the exhaustion of just being a, a person of color in this moment right now. Right. And there's this idea that, you know, these are just spoiled players who have a ton of money. And it's like, that's, first of all, that's not true of a lot of these players, right? Like you can say, okay, LeBron, if he doesn't play the rest of the season, uh, he's going to be fine. He's LeBron, you know? And, but there's a lot of players in that bubble that don't make a ton of money. I mean, you're talking about these two way players who are just trying to get on a stage and it's like, they're, they're, they're in the same boat. They're, considering canceling the rest of the season it's like they will be affected you know <laughs> and it's it's not about you know these guys trying to get what they want it's about them feeling like they have a responsibility to speak on a stage that they have been given that other people have not been given because they have upward mobility that other people don't have because they're really good at basketball and that puts them on a stage where they can actually affect change in a way that others can't um, and I think, I think that's important to understand. Um, and you're also, you know, the NBA is really, really interesting as it comes to this conversation, because you have uh, so many guys that are come from so many different backgrounds and so many of star players come from different backgrounds. I mean, you have, you know, two, two of the NBA's biggest stars in the playoffs so far have been Luka Doncic and Jamal Murray. Neither of them were born <laughs> in America. Jamal Murray's Canadian. Luka Doncic is Serbian. Uh, I always Slovenian. screw that. Slovenian. Yep. Slovenian. Uh, you know, and a guy like Anis Kanter is super interesting as well. Cause he, he grew up in Turkey. He's like, he's an enemy of the state in Turkey. Um, and he, he, I don't know if he's allowed to go back because of the things he said against government there. And I think if you don't think that these players have perspective that is worth listening to, and I don't know what to tell you. Um, and it's, and it's important what's happening right now. It's important to be aware. It's important to understand. And it's important to accept that, you may not have, you probably don't have the experiences if you didn't grow up in these communities that these players have. And if they're telling you that something's happening, then you should believe them and you should understand that this is a, this is an issue that needs to be addressed. Um, and it's, it's, and it's frustrating even from my perspective to continue hearing it and to continue hearing people say, Oh, this is, this is just a bunch of spoiled kids acting up. And it's just like, how many different ways does it have to be shown and displayed and and explained before it's just accepted that there are issues that need to be fixed? Um, and if that if that takes canceling the NBA season, then I am all for canceling the NBA season. <laughs> Let's just get that one thing clear. As much as I love watching NBA basketball, I was more than fine with the idea that it could be canceled if the players didn't feel like their uh, concerns were being met. Yeah, if you haven't watched that Jamal Murray interview, um, please go watch it. I mean, you you can just hear the pain in his voice. I mean, you can see it on his face. I mean, that's just one of those things where if you watch that, it just it just forces you to be a human. And I think really that's that's all people are asking for right now is just you know be a human and and you know want the same basic rights for other groups of people that that your group of people have. Um, I was, I was just really impressed by Jabal and I thought, you know, that was kind of 
the best of, of the NBA um, on display. Okay, Jeff. So last week we painted the rosy picture of the Pelicans going forward. Today we're going to be poly pessimist. We're going to be negative Nancys. We're going to be half glass empty Ernies. Are there any more of those you can think of? No, I'm I'm on board with poly pessimist. I've never heard that one, but uh, I'm 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 in. Okay. Yep. Get your get your cleavers out. It is uh, poly pessimist time. Um. So today we're we're basically going to uh, lay out, I guess, five reasons or, or causes for concern um, about this Pelicans rebuild going forward. You know, last week last week we did five reasons to be optimistic about where this thing is headed. Um, before we we start, I just want to say, I think there are more reasons to be you know optimistic than pessimistic. I mean, there are a lot of things to like about the way this thing is going to look moving forward, um, even though that was just about the most disappointing end possible in the bubble. Um, if you have a bad taste in your mouth still after what the Pelicans did in the bubble, uh, I don't blame you. I mean, I totally get that. I kind of do too. Um, and I think, you know, the people running the Pelicans certainly do. Um, but still a lot to like. So I think, you know, the biggest reason that, that, so many people in the fan base, hardcore Pels fans, and, and even you know people who work with the team who decided there needed to be a shakeup. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest problems with this, the current group of guys is there just don't seem to be that many guys on the roster who hate losing. I mean, there's that cliche of, oh, do you, do you hate to lose more than you love to win? Um, I didn't see that from a lot of guys on this roster. I think J.J. Redick is, is certainly one guy you could point to who, you know, was going to fight no matter what the season. And, and, you know, even until that, that last must-win game against the bubble, he was, he was really going all out. I think that Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson could get there. I don't really see that from them right now. I mean, I think one of the biggest lessons from this season is that Drew – is not going to really be, you know, the emotional leader that you want him to be. He is an excellent, excellent player. I mean, I've, I've said before that I think, you know, he could even be a guy who's more valuable in the playoffs than he's in the regular season. But the Pelicans just, I don't know, for lack of a better term, need some more SOBs or, or guys who just, you know, don't tolerate going out or bowing out quietly. Um, you know, one of the things we heard all season was, the Pelicans are a really quiet team. Alvin Gentry called them the quietest team he's coached in, in more than three decades. J.J. Redick kind of kind of said something similar. You know, they were one of the quietest teams he's played on in a decade and a half around the game. This has really stuck with me. Uh, this is something J.J. said after they lost in Milwaukee. Uh, this was like their 10th straight loss of that 13-game losing streak. J.J. said, I maybe mentioned this a while ago, but energy, talk, effort, those things are contagious in the same way that the negatives of those apathy being lethargic, I think, are contagious. There's an energy you have to bring to the group. The group feeds on either one, whether it's negative or positive. I thought that was, you know, just about the most articulate way I heard of getting at this issue. I mean, I don't think it's as simple as saying, like, the Pelicans just need to bring in some more talkers. But I agree with J.J. that 
you know, just apathy and, and, you know, being quiet, those things are contagious and they're just, you just need to do something, you know, whether that's internal growth or bringing in people from the outside to, to kind of address that. Yeah. And they don't have anyone on the team that, that brings what I call like the Chris Paul effect, which is, you know, there are certain players that show up and the entire roster takes on the personality of that player because it's so powerful. You know, Jimmy Butler is another one of those guys where it's like you're not allowed to play on a court with Jimmy Butler unless you are as passionate about winning this game as Jimmy Butler is because he will actively get rid of you. Yeah, <laughs> you you're know, culture he will, setters. He will run you off the court with the second string guys just to prove you ain't shit. Um, and, and the, you know, and I think JJ is, a, is like that. But his role on the in the offense just isn't conducive to being the true the emotional leader of a team. So you know, and I think that I think that he's a really good locker room guy. I just don't know if that's a, if his role is enough. Um, and I don't know what the solution is there. I don't think Drew Holiday Drew Holiday is never going to be the you know the bullish uh, personality type that that you're going to need to get over that issue. You know, Zion could be that guy. I don't know. I don't know if Brandon Ingram is uh, loud enough to be that guy. I don't know. I've never, I haven't seen him behind closed doors, obviously. So I don't know what he's like in a locker room. But you know, he doesn't strike me as that guy. Uh, but who knows? You know, there, there's growth to be had for both of those guys in terms of how they dominate and how they lead the locker room. So you know, maybe they can get there. Uh, I think a big part of it is whatever coach they bring in. Um, needs to make that a focal point of uh, whatever their plan is. And I don't think, you know, as as much as Alvin Gentry was liked within a locker room and, and by the players, I don't think he ever demanded that of players as much as he should have or was able to get that type of leadership out of the players that he had. Even Anthony Davis, as good as he was, wasn't, wasn't the type of leader you would want in terms of your star player. He's much better playing next to LeBron where – you know, LeBron is going to take that role and he can just be a star. Um, so I, I think that that's a really good point. As you watch this team develop, it's it's worth keeping an eye on, like, where is that leadership coming from? Who is who is taking the ownership for, you know, we're not playing well right now and this is why. We're not doing what we need to be doing and this is why. If it's only J.J. Redick, I think that's a problem because, like I said, he's a veteran, but he's not the – uh, he's not the star player on the roster that you should be hearing from in that situation. Yeah, you you almost have to be you know one of the best players on the team to to do this you know fill this role really well. I mean, JJ Redick I think was a fantastic locker room guy, but exactly as you said, there's only so much you can do when you're you know like a spot up shooter off the bench. Um, I think the Pelicans are hopeful that that Zion Williamson can become this guy in time. Um, right now, it's just really early. That was such a weird season. You know, he was in and out of the lineup so much that I think it was really impossible um, for him for him to be that guy. But I, I think there is, you know, some optimism that that he could become the locker room leader and, and offer some of that, that, I guess, just brashness that they didn't really have this season. And, you know, maybe that could just be we're a young team thing, um, but it's going to be really interesting. I mean, I, I just don't know a great answer of how do you get it? Like, how do you get toughness? Like, I don't think it's as simple as signing like a Morris brother or anything, you know? 
I saw some people say, oh, uh, the Mavs, they need to sign some enforcers this offseason. Like, they could even use the Morris brother. And it's like, I mean, toughness is, I mean, that that is a form of toughness. And, like, don't get me wrong, I think, like, the Morris brothers can be helpful NBA players. But, like, there's so much more to toughness than just, like, guys who will knock people around. You know, there's the mental component of it. You know, I don't think it's, especially where the NBA is today, I don't think it's, like, yeah, just get, like, a hockey enforcer or whatever. Right. Like I'm re- I'm rewatching the Jordan doc uh because why why not? And it it's kind of the same in terms of like toughness isn't being willing to give a dirty foul when you're getting beat by a player. That's not what toughness is. That's you know, that might hurt the other guy, but it's not you being tough. That's not mental toughness, which is really the the issue here. Just I don't, I don't even know if toughness is fair because they're like Steven Adams is a tough guy, but he's not a guy who's going to be a, a leader in the locker room. And that's what, when you say toughness, I think that's what you're, that's what you're referring to. And yeah, uh, a Morris brother is, it's a very different situation, especially now I made a joke the other day. I think he trains at the Cobra Kai dojo in the off season. <laughs> Cause geez, man, I, I don't know. Sweep the leg. I, right. Get him a body bag. I like, I don't know if I've ever seen a, a player on a team that was, like on the cusp of winning a series play the way he did in terms of, you know, the first one, you, you don't have to give him the benefit of the doubt, knowing what you know about Marcus Morris, (laughs) but there was at least some gray area in terms of like, well, maybe he just took a weird step and stepped on the injured ankle. There's the second one was just like, he literally just hit him in the back of the head. (laughs) Just like what's going on. Uh, But yeah, I, I don't think that's the type of toughness teams want. But I mean, I think the Mavs are another example of like be outside of Luka Doncic. I don't think there's a lot of toughness on that roster. Um, and I think a lot of teams have that issue in terms of needing to address um, learning how to be a winning franchise and changing the culture. So it's not just the Pelicans. I don't want to feel like yeah. we're piling oh, yeah. on. Uh, this is, like the Timberwolves for years have had that issue. They have all these players. They have all these great players, but they just can't seem to learn how to win. Uh, and Jimmy, even Jimmy Butler wasn't able to get him over the hump on that front. So who knows? Maybe there is more to it than just adding a player with that type of te- temperament. Yeah, winning is hard. As uh, someone texted me, uh, he's he is an NBA skills coach. I was, you know, I was complaining about the Pelicans' lack of fight, and oh, you know, this road forward is going to be a lot more difficult than you know maybe a lot of people imagine, including myself. And he just replied back, "Winning is hard." And I was like, "Oh yeah, that's a good point." Fair. Yeah. Number two on this list, I still don't think the Pelicans know for sure what their answer is at point guard long term. Um, Obviously, you know, they made the trade with the Lakers in the hopes that that Lonzo Ball could be the answer. And I still think, you know, it's a it's a possibility that he is. But I don't think, you know, anybody can really say for sure right now that, yes, 100 percent Lonzo Ball is your answer for the next four or five years at the starting point guard position. Um, Lonzo did not play well in the bubble, you know, on the court, but, but also in just like the fight department, it, it didn't, it didn't look like he cared that much that the team was just getting their butt kicked. I thought he showed a lot of self-awareness in kind of his exit interview. Uh, he took some responsibility for how the Pelicans played. And it was a lot more than just him. And he also made the point that, you know, when, when he played well this season, the team usually won. And, and when he didn't, they really struggled. And I think that's that was right for the most part. I and mean, you look at the beginning of the season, you know, he briefly lost a starting spot there. 
he really turned it around starting in late December that, that coincided with the Pelicans kind of turning their season around. And I thought he played really well until the pause in play. And then the, you know, what happened in the bubble was just kind of inexplicable. I mean, I, I really do think the Pelicans kind of ebbed and flowed in, in a manner similar to how Lonzo performed this season. And when I look at his season as a whole, there are clear positives. I mean, he, he reworked his three-point shot, and, and it was going down at a lot higher rate than ever before. I mean, I think that's really something that he can continue to build on. I think the chemistry with Zion Williamson is undeniable. You know, without looking it up, like he assisted in like a third of Zion's buckets. I mean, they're, I think, a great match, especially in the open court. But there's still a lot of things that, that give me pause about his game. And, you know, they've they've got an interesting decision to make. Lonzo is extension eligible this offseason. You know, if they don't do anything, he could go into a contract year and, and go through restricted free agency next year, similar to what Brandon Ingram uh, just got done with. Um, where are you at with just Lonzo, you know, maybe being the point guard of the future, maybe not? Well, there's a lot of things to consider with Lonzo. And one of them is, well, I think I said last week that I'm not sure if Gentry's system was the best situation for Zion Williamson, the rookie, as he was ramping back into health. Uh, I think it was best case scenario for Lonzo Ball in terms of what he's supposed to be able to do and what he is able to do versus what he did. And I think in, in moments you saw this guy who made a lot of sense. And then in so many times you saw this guy who didn't make a whole lot of sense because he wasn't able to do the things they needed him to do, like break down the defense and pressure the interior and collapse the defense and then be able to kick to the outside because he just didn't pressure the defense enough. Um, they had no issue sending him to the line because he can't make a free throw. And I can't get over that. I really can't. When when I talk about Lonzo Ball not being able to make a free throw from the point guard spot, even like when Rondo was with the Celtics, he he couldn't shoot free throws well, but he was still shooting like fifty percent, sixty percent. You're talking about a guy who you're lucky if he shoots fifty percent, and that's an issue. Um, he's had three years to correct it, and he has not been able to do make any market market improvement in that in that capacity, and that's a problem. And like a Rondo's like a crafty finisher inside too. Like Lonzo, there's not much craft to his game around the rim, I don't think. Right, and he can't make a floater. Um, and while the three point shot is great, if you if if you need your point guard to be your spacer, there's a problem. And I I don't know. I I think that with another year with Zion, I think you could see some some great improvement there. But I also would not be surprised to see them move on from him. Um, if they find someone who's willing to part with assets, I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, at least not to the level that would make sense to make that trade. Um, I think you're going to see another year of, of Lonzo, and I hope that he's able to fix some of those problems um, with a little more consistency in terms of the lineup. I also think that the point guard issues for the Pelicans weren't necessarily all on Lonzo Ball. I mean, who is your who is your sec- I mean they were running Drew at point a lot and then beyond that you have Frank Jackson I, I like Frank Jackson I don't think he's a I don't think he's a backup point guard in the NBA so you know if, if you replace him with a guy like Ish Smith and you have a guy that Lonzo can actually learn from in terms of uh, how to go about his role in that offense I think that that would go a long way to helping Lonzo improve so it'll be interesting to see what they do this offseason in terms of that the depth at the guard spot. I don't, I don't think Nikhil is the answer. <laughs> if he's going to be your backup point guard, I don't think he's a point guard. I think he's a two. So I, I don't know. They have a lot of questions to answer in terms of the backcourt and the backcourt depth. And 
I think he's going to be a part of it. It's just a matter of the pieces they put around him. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they, I guess, address the point guard position. And, you know, if, if they do, you know, hold on to Lonzo, if they decide to do something else to shore up the backup point guard position, I, mean, I definitely think they could have used, you know, another skilled ball handler who just understood how to get the ball to people in their spots and play a little bit of pick and roll because the Pelicans just didn't have that many guys who were great at breaking down the defense in, in the pick and roll. Um, but I, I think I'm still in the camp of I want to see a little bit more of Lonzo Ball in a Pelicans uniform. I'm if it was me, I wouldn't be ready to cut bit yet. I'd want to see, you know, at least one full season next to Zion, but just a personal opinion. Okay, uh moving on, number three in our list. Your star forwards don't defend right now. Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson are unquestionably, you know, the two pillars, cornerstones, whatever you want to call them for this franchise moving forward. Ingram is about to get a huge new deal with the Pelicans. Um, you know, Zion <laughs> going to be here for a while, uh, you know, barring something really unforeseen. You know, I think one of the lessons of the playoffs is wing defense is still undervalued. Um, you know, the playoffs are just all about versatility. And, and when you spot another team's weaknesses, like, those your weakness is just going to get dragged under the microscope and 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 tried to get repeatedly exploited. Like I look at you know MPJ, extremely talented offensive player, and the Jazz you know have made him unplayable for for a certain part of this series just by going pick and roll with him every single time. I mean I think if the Pelicans had made the playoffs, you know it would have been ugly for them. You know getting killed on the defensive end with with Ingram and Zion. I guess where I'm split about them is that I'm I'm pretty optimistic that Zion is going to be able to turn it around on the defensive end. I think for him it's just a matter of of getting in the right shape because we saw that he can be you know clearly a plus on that end in college. Um, he definitely has the right instincts. Ingram, I I haven't seen you know the right instincts with him as much and I'm wondering if he's got that in him. I mean I know that the Pelicans have challenged him like look, there's just going to be more responsibility that comes with this new deal. Ingram understands that he needs to be better on that. And um, it's it's going to be really interesting to see. Uh, you know, the one thing he does have working for him, he's just long. I mean, I think when you've got that wingspan, that it's a huge plus. Um, he, he just looks kind of lost out there so much of the time, though. Yeah, Zion, Zion you can put a lot of his defensive struggles on not being in shape, I think. And, and just the Alvin Gentry system, which did not prioritize defense. You know, it's, when you talk about a guy getting fired, he went down with the ship of, we need to go fast and we need to prioritize possessions. And, uh, and that's, and when it's not working, it's going to look real bad. And it did a lot of the season. Um, and I don't know, I'm not willing to say that Zion it, the only issue Zion had was being out of shape because I think that any college player coming into the NBA, whether you're a great player or not, you know, maybe a guy like Matisse Thybul is an, is a, is an exception because so much of his skill set is based on the defensive end. But especially when you're a star player who prioritizes offense, you're going to have a lot to learn. There's going to be a learning curve in terms of the different type of offenses you're going to be going against a lot more isolation you're facing a lot more elite athletes who you can't just 
be out of positioning and recover on the way you could in college. I don't want to say he doesn't know that or he hasn't learned that. I just don't think he's had the opportunity because when you've only played 24 games, you're just not going to have, it's just not enough time to become a competent NBA defender. Um, and so I, I think that when you talk about going into year two with Zion, the lack of games played is going to work against him in terms of where you would hope he would be versus where he's going to be on the defensive end. Um, where you're talking about Ingram, it's a guy who has had plenty of time to learn how to play NBA level defense and has not done it as well as you'd like to see. I don't know what the upper, what the ceiling is for him as far as being a defender is, but I I will say that a new coach could work wonders for him in terms of someone coming in and prioritizing defense and holding people accountable on the defensive end. And, you know, I, I thought Alvin Gentry got a, got a bad shake a, a lot of the time with, in his job, in his time with the Pelicans, I thought he got a bad shake, but I think the criticism on the defensive end is more than valid. And, and from what I saw, I didn't see any development in terms of Brandon Ingram, that side of Brandon Ingram's game. He made a ton of development on offense, made a ton of development on his shot, shot making and his jump shot and the free throw line. And he became an all-star, but, defensively I think he actually may have taken a step back um and you you see a guy who has arms that are about 12 feet long he should at least be able to uh, make people work on the perimeter and he I, he just hasn't shown that so I like I like I said before and I'm leaning on this a lot it's like whoever they bring in at head coach is going to have a big responsibility in terms of making sure those guys get to the point that they need to be to play competitive basketball on a regular basis I would agree with you. I mean, if you're looking at, you know, I think the three most damning things of, of you know, the season that Gentry just finished, you know, one is the turnover issues. They're second to last in turnover rate. They just, they just threw it everywhere, like, you know, eight feet out of bounds all the time. They're stepping on the end lines, just on unforced errors. There are so many of them. Um, their crunch time struggles. They were arguably the worst team executing in crunch time. I mean, I, I think, you know, you, you have to look at coaching in terms of that. And then, you know, probably probably my biggest gripe was there was good defensive personnel on this team. Um, you know, maybe not Ingram. He needs developing, and, and Zion was a weird case. But I really do believe there are good individuals, defenders on this team. And it just, yeah, it never really baked or coalesced into something where, you know, they were greater than the sum of the parts. I mean, I, I don't even think the parts added up to, like, what they should they, they should have been at all i probably they're, butchered they're that say literally lesser than the sum of their parts if you yeah. <laughs> just yeah. turned around i mean there were some pieces here for for them to at least be de- decent on the defensive end and i don't even think they were that for most of the season i mean it's 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 tough that you know drew holiday arguably you know the best defender of guards in the entire league played on, on such a sorry defense. I mean, Lonzo Ball is a guy who can play some defense. Uh, Derek Favors is, is, you know, fine or pretty good when he's out there. It just shouldn't have been this bad, I don't think. No. And and it's it's a situation where you can't win when it's this bad. <laughs> like, there were games early in the season that they would put up 135 points and lose. And it's just not a sustainable when you when you're in the, when you're out west and you need to win games to make the playoffs, uh, you're gonna have a hard time doing that when you you have to score 130 points to win games because you're just not gonna be able to do that consistently. And the only way to prevent that from happening is by playing real defense. <laughs> they don't need to be great. 
They just need to be confident, and they were not a majority of the time this season. Um, that Kings game in the bubble is one of the most embarrassing defensive efforts I've ever seen from a t- from an NBA team. And that is not the only time that this season that that has been the case in terms of you just have you just have levels of like whether this is the most emba- like they've reset the deck in terms of what the most embarrassing defensive performance was at least four or five times. Uh, and that's not good. <laughs> it's not what you want. Yeah. I can't decide with that Kings game whether that's one where they should delete all copies of the tape, like take the tape, you know, dig a hole out there at Airline Drive and bury it, or if they should play that tape around the clock when the guys are going into the locker room. It's, it's one of the two, and I'm not sure which. I'm leaning towards bury the tape forever because you're bringing in a new head coach and right. you know, new beginnings and all that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was about as bad of defense as you could play in a game you have to win. Okay, uh, number four on the list, the race for a playoff spot and the Western Conference next year is going to be absolutely brutal. Uh, I've, I've likened it to you know, Mad, Mad Max Fury Road, uh, that, that level of terrifying, the road to getting a top eight seed in the West next year, I kind of look at the the picture going into next year. You know, I think there are six teams that that probably aren't going in anywhere. You know, unless they're like catastrophic injuries to their star players. Uh, I'm kind of penciling in the Lakers, Clippers, Nuggets, Rockets, Jazz, and Mavericks to make it next year. Uh, you know that that if that holds, that basically leaves two more spots. And you know, when you talk about those spots. Portland, they're pretty darn good with Yusuf Nurkic back and healthy as they showed in the bubble. Um, I mean, even before this year, they made the Western Conference Finals. Golden State, you know, Steph, Clay are going to be back. Year of hibernation. Uh, they're either going to have the number two pick. <laughs> they're either going to have the number two pick or move that for an asset. I mean, you got Memphis, Phoenix, San Antonio all trying to make the playoffs. Like, there's not, there's not one team I look at in the entire Western Conference where I'm like, yeah, they're definitely, you know, not going to try to win going into the year. And, like, I'm I'm just 99% certain they're not making the playoffs. Like, even Minnesota, I, I don't like their team at all. I'm not, like, they have Russell and Towns. Like, I'm not, like, uh, they're definitely not making it. Yeah, I mean, you accounted for 11 seeds in the West, and you didn't even mention uh, the team with the guy that's literally incapable of winning fewer than 50 games, <laughs> which is Chris Paul um, and the Thunder. <laughs> like, you didn't, he's not even on that list. So... And I don't think that he's physically capable of missing the playoffs. So if you if you add him and gold, if you add the Thunder, I say him. I guess you should say it's the Thunder uh, to this list. Plus Golden State, it's like you really think that they're not going to be in the top five. <laughs> like that's all eight playoff seeds accounted for. Uh, that you, I mean, what was the worst record among those teams this year? 40, 47 wins. The Warriors, notwithstanding, it's you're going to have to be real good to make the playoffs. And that's why when you talk about a team that's like playing the long game, you're not going to, it's not going to be a situation where, you know, they trade Buddy Heald for DeMarcus Cousins so they can make a run at the playoffs this year. Like they're going to try to improve and it would be great if they could make the playoffs in that process, but they are not anywhere near the win now type move situation where you're, on the cusp and you just need to add one or two pieces to be able to be in that elite company. They're not there yet. And, you know, maybe if Zion had played a full season and you saw this, you know, consistently game record type player, you would feel a little, a little more confident, but 
you know, you still have to see that from him to, to be able to make moves with that mentality. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and even the, even the teams that weren't on the, that, that didn't make it, you know, the Suns could come out and be this uh, elite team and, and end up pushing for, you know, the five or six seed based on what you saw at the end of this year. So there's a lot of evidence to say that the Pelicans could be picking in the lottery again. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no question about it. I mean, I felt like if, if Vegas put out odds for like playoff odds, I mean, I don't, I don't think, you know, I mean, I guess it's too early without free agency in the draft, but like, I can't imagine that the Pelicans are even going to be like favored to be a top eight team, you know, in the West going into next year. Um, you know, I, I don't think that means that they should punt on trying to win or anything, but like, I also don't think they should sign anybody, you know, that they don't love to like a three year, $40 million deal. Like, you know, I think there's like a happy medium between those things. Like, you know, a guy like Tristan Thompson, like go get him for a year or two at center and you could be competitive, but you're not like going, going for it. And you're not locked into a deal you're going to hate and that's going to hamstring you down the road. Uh, but it, I mean, it's going to be really interesting conversations with the candidates to become head coach of this next team. And I'm sure that's going to be one of their next question. You know, one of their first questions is, do you guys expect to make the playoffs next year, you know, in your heart of hearts? Yeah. And it's always a fine line to walk. And it's really easy to to find fault with a lot of the Dell Demps moves in his tenure. But one of the things that fans need to keep in mind is small market teams are not going to be able to sign max level free agents. It just doesn't happen. I can't, if you had to go back and say like, who's the last player to sign a, or the last smaller market team, like bottom top, bottom half market team to sign a max level free agent. It'd probably be well, LeBron in Cleveland, which doesn't even really count in my opinion, because it's, you know, there's underlying circumstances there. Maybe Harrison Barnes in Sacramento. I don't, but like, it's just not a factor. And when, I mean, it's just, it's a major factor. And I remember uh, before LeBron signed with the Lakers, I had conversations with multiple people and who sat there with a straight face and told me that they thought that LeBron signing with the Pelicans was a real possibility to come play (laughs) with Anthony Davis. Like, and I was like, are you out of your mind? There are actually Nuggets fans that believe that too. I remember a lot of like, even like Nugget guys who, you know, cover the Nuggets on the radio. Like uh, I'm hearing that, you know, LeBron thinks the Nuggets are a real contender. And there were like articles of like, oh, LeBron is friends with Josh Kroenke and like posting pictures of like LeBron jumping into the water off Josh's yacht. And uh, yeah. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. It's like, and go, go back through the last like 10 years of free agent signings and tell me how many times a player who was demanding a max level deal signed with a team in the bottom half of the, uh, of the, of the market uh, rankings. And you will not find many, if any other than, like I said, LeBron, which doesn't really count. Um, But, and and that's when you look at moves like signing Solomon Hill to, you know, this crazy contract and even each one more got paid a lot of money. He's, you know, he he still got paid a lot of money this year uh, compared to his role. You have, situations where you trade a guy like Buddy Heel to just to bring in DeMarcus Cousins and you have to do that because that's how that's how small market teams acquire max level players. Uh you know, you you re-sign your own players, like you re-sign Drew to a max deal, but you're just not going to be able to sign those guys in free agency. Um like look at what happened with Utah and Gordon Hayward. Look at what happened with the Bobcats, I'm sorry, the Hornets and Kemba Walker. It's it's just very difficult and 
that's what, when you look at how they're going to have to make these moves, David Griffin's going to have to, he's going to have to work a lot harder than a lot of other GMs because he has to make sure these assets turn into the type of player that he needs. This isn't, when the Celtics had all their assets, they also had the ability to go out and sign Gordon Hayward and Kemba Walker. So they didn't have as much, as much um, pressure on using those assets in those deals that the Pelicans will have. Yeah. Um, last up on our list, number five, your franchise player only played in 24 games as a rookie. You know, can Zion be a guy you depend on for 75-plus games, you know, regular season in and regular season out? Um, you know, of course, you know, this this curse season uh, kind of got off to a bad start. Um, really, you know, in the preseason when, when Zion dealt with a knee injury, had to have surgery right before the regular season opener. Um the Pelicans were extremely cautious with him all season, and I think at points that even frustrated Zion. Like, I think there was frustration on his end of, you know, I could be coming back a lot sooner than three months after I had the surgery. Why am I not back? Frustration in the bubble that, oh, you guys are, are making me deal with this minutes limit again. Um, and I get why that was frustrating for him and, and the fan base especially after, you know, it seemed like, you know, everything, all the moves you made and, and the comments you made before the season was, hey, we're trying to win right now. At the same time, um, I completely understand why they did take the long view for a lot of this season. Um, you know, as, as David Griffin has said many times, Zion Williamson has such a unique body type. I, I agree that you can't treat him like everybody else. And that's why, you know, to an extent, I am willing to defend them you know, handling with him, kit handling him with with kid gloves for so much of the season. I mean, look, if you can get Zion to to get to this point where he is, you know, playing in 70, 75 regular season games every year um, by by changing the way he runs, the way he lands, um, you know, distributing his his minutes in a way where it's like not very taxing on his body, it's totally worth it. Um, but I am. <laughs> I am, you know, pretty concerned about just Zion Williamson, you know, the athlete and and the toll, the incredible stuff he does takes on his body after this year. I mean, I don't know how you could not be. Yeah, probably the weirdest thing that happened so far as Zion Williamson is concerned this year is in March, not long before the season went on pause, when he actually played 30 some odd minutes in a back to back set against the Mavericks. On, you know, the second half of back-to-back. Um, and it was so unusual that Alvin Gentry forgot about it when they were playing a back-to-back <laughs> in the bubble. And he said, well, he hadn't played one in the regular season. Why would we do it now? And he said that. And I was like, I swear I remember him playing. And I went back and, yeah, he played 33 minutes uh, the first night. He played 35 the second night, which doubled as his highest minutes output of the entire season. Um, and uh, I thought that was really strange because it it just flew in the face of everything that you kind of, had just come to expect in terms of, okay, he's not going to play in the second half back-to-back. Why would he? And I thought that was odd, um, And but I think it was a good sign of how confident they were at that point of the season. This thunder is getting intense. Um, because he had to earn that right. They weren't just going to throw him out there because they needed to win that game. The, the importance of that game did not factor into that decision as much as them trusting that he was in the right type of shape to be able to handle that. Um, so I think that was a really good sign. If you want to look at positives from this season, the fact that in the games that he played, he was able to 
create enough uh, confidence within the medical staff and and the coaching staff that he could that he could take on that level of, of strain on his and his fitness on his body. But on the flip side of that, as you go into next season and you, you have the same training staff, you have a different coach, but you have the same uh, physios and you have the same uh, medical staff who's looking at this type of stuff. Don't be surprised if he doesn't play on the second night of back-to-backs. <laughs> like I said before, this is not a situation where you're you're even going to be favored to make the playoffs. So they're not going to just throw caution to the wind and say, yeah, we're going to throw him out there. He, I always compare him to Joel Embiid and how his career started. And you know, I don't think he played back-to-back sets until his third season. Maybe, And even then, it was a question of whether he would play. And I think you're going to see a lot of that with Zion. It's going to be frustrating for fans. But... I think that's that's also a smart way to do it, especially, you know, they haven't announced a lot of the specifics regarding next year's season. But if they try to cram 82 games in, you're going to end up seeing a lot more back-to-back sets, which kind of leads me to believe they might shorten that season a little bit. Um, but there's just no there's no way to know at this point what that's going to look like. But I think you're going to see a lot of next season what you saw a lot of this season, and it's just going to be a matter of him showing the training staff that he can take on that he can handle the workload that you're asking. Yeah, I'm I'm still having, you know, a hard time understanding how, you know, that that picture we saw of Zion that went viral that everyone was passing around uh the first day of you know the season restarting at the Pelicans practice facility. I mean he just looked so fit. I mean he looked fantastic. How he got from that point to the player we saw, you know, after he spent 10 days away from the bubble and, and then, you know, for another four days of quarantine, you know, what he looked like in that first game, it was just, it was just such a noticeable change. I mean, all the buzz, you know, coming from the team was, yeah, but he, he looks great. Um, and, and then he was just kind of a guy with a completely different body, you know, two weeks later, I just think that speaks to, you know, how unique he is. I mean, Two weeks can be the difference between being in killer shape and terrible shape for Zion Williamson in a a way that I don't think is the case for for many other NBA players, if any. Um, So this was such a weird year. Um, You know, Zion will probably never have to go through another one like this in his NBA career. Um, But I (laughs) I I think, you know, one of the lessons from this year for him is, like, you know, even even like a week off, you know, not doing like not working out or getting in the gym for like a week. And I'm not even saying that he should have when he was away from the team, but that can make a tremendous amount of difference. It's got to be a 24 seven, 365 for him thing in terms of thinking about his body. A lot of the Twitter, the Twitter tirades that you'll see, and they just kind of like, they're like storms that circulate and then kind of move on. And one of the, one of the biggest ones was, the criticism of the team for hyping up that Zion may, might be in good shape. And it's like, all they did was send out a photo to be, to be completely fair. Like <laughs> they didn't say like, this guy is in the best shape of his life. They, you know, they just sent out a photo from a, from a very uh, flattering angle that, <laughs> you know, and uh, it is, it is kind of funny to see how that works. And I, I had at least like five or six people tweet me specifically and say like, well, why did the team hype up how in shape he was? And it's like, they didn't, you just chose to interpret that photo that way. Well, I also think he was in shape, and then he just wasn't. I don't know if that, that, but that's not possible to an extent. You know, like maybe he just, 
maybe he just didn't drink water that day or something like who knows who knows i don't think you you can't you can't look at someone and know if they're in shape or not it's impossible um because there are guys that i've run into that look like they are in incredible shape and then they run up and down the floor once and they can't breathe uh, it's it, it's just not a i don't know who knows um but i don't know if that's something to pin on the pelicans organization because there was a photo of him in a mask where he looked very vascular <laughs> telling what was you know the truth from from kind of the bs was was even more difficult because we're not getting to see these guys in person ever i mean it's everything is so controlled and i mean you're you're basically just following this stuff on on twitter and periscope so it did make it very difficult um jeff you got anything else to add before we get out of here and this thunder uh continues to rattle our apartments no just that i, I hear taco falls learn how to swim today so that's fine. <laughs> yeah uh another day in the bubble um <laughs> we appreciate you guys for listening this week it makes a big difference if you leave a five-star review if you enjoy listening to the show um, please do that it, it is a huge help and we will talk to you guys next week peace